Please open your Bible to two places. I'd like you to open to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, which is on page 853. And then also into Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, which is on page 1426. So page 853 and 1426. We'll we'll begin with the psalm. We're just going to read the first nine verses. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, And he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Over in Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds... He, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, we are taking these Beatitudes just one at a time because there's so much richness in them. They, they really demand that you, you sit and meditate on each of them one at a time and just get into what Jesus is talking about. And what I've been trying to say to you up to now is that there is a connection between each of them. That as the Beatitudes unfold, there's a kind of logical sequence in them. And you've noticed that the early three Beatitudes that we looked at so far, these, these sayings, these blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they, the first three begin with a, a much more of a kind of a negative outlook, I could put it that way, forcing you as a Christian to look inwards at your own heart. And as you do so, Christ, in fact, this is a precursor to what it means to be a Christian, that before anything else, you, you have to come to this place where you realize that you're poor in spirit, which is to say that you are spiritually bankrupt. That's what Christianity says to every person Um, On the face of the planet, it doesn't care how good you think you are, God says you are spiritually bankrupt. You're poor in spirit, and then you begin to mourn. Blessed are they who mourn. You begin to feel a sense of grief over your sin. And it produces this meekness that we were talking about last week. Now, all of this, you can see, is slightly more negative, but it's the the right and um, appropriate precursor to everything that God wants to do in the life of the Christian. You just have to tune Seth out if you can. He likes to sing whenever possible. Um, it's the natural precursor to what God wants to do in bringing people to faith. He has to first knock you down. He has to demolish your self-righteousness, your effort to build yourself up and to be something before God. You have to come to him recognizing that you are bankrupt and empty and then Christ can save you. Then he can fill you. And if you have never experienced that, then you are not a Christian. 
If you have never experienced that conviction of the Holy Spirit working in your heart and pointing out the ways in which Christ could rightly judge you and call you a sinner and, and cast you out of his presence eternally, then you, you cannot have received his saving grace because they are, the two things come together. So often people are brought up in a context in which they understand religion to be um, a list of do's and don'ts. I was just talking with guys yesterday telling me about what, what it meant for them growing up in South Africa in the Dutch Reformed Church. And I don't want to in any way cast a judgment on that, that denomination in general. But they said for them it was, just, it was just being brought up in a context where we were told what we could and couldn't do. And they said, most guys just walk away from the church at some point, And it's only later in life that they rediscover what it all meant in the first place. And the problem is, of course, that at the very root, you're telling kids that you can go to heaven if you're good enough. It's kind of a Santa Claus version of Christianity, isn't it? That he's looking to see who's naughty and nice. And actually, that's a million miles from what Christ says. Christ says, no, we are all utterly empty and without any spiritual wealth when we come into God's presence. But then it moves on to this fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is maybe a little bit more positive. It draws our eyes away from looking inwards and puts before you something that your life ought to be about. Gives you something positively to run towards. And I want to ask you to be really honest with yourself as we begin today. And think about what is it that you, you are living for? I know that's a very difficult question to answer on the spot. But what is it? What are, what are the things you dream about? What are the things that you are, get excited about? What is it that you're passionate for? Christ tells us that this, this righteousness ought to be at the very top of our heart's ambitions. And it comes with a promise that we're going to be unfolding and thinking about as well. He says, for they shall be satisfied. That word satisfied was a word that apparently was used of, when you, when you have animals that you're going to one day slaughter for their delicious meat, you want them to put on weight. In fact, you breed the, the big ones because they're going to have the most meat. And, and you start feeding them. You feed them as much as you can. I understand that the French take this to an extreme with their foie gras, which they force feed down the birds' necks. But in a normal farming context, you want your animals to be full up. And that's the word that's used here, this idea of being f- filled. I guess it's the kind of feeling you have um, when you've been to a fantastic dinner party or one of Ben's dinner parties. I get, ben, ben Hodgson, you need to be friends with him. This guy can cook like no one I know. Amazing stuff. Or if you've, you've gone to your mum's house for Christmas and you are just replete. You know that afternoon feeling where the mixture of the wine and the turkey just makes you want to fall asleep but in a really happy way. That, sorry? Food coma, exactly. That's what we're talking about. Those who are hungry and thirst after righteousness will experience a, a food coma. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, we need to just begin by thinking about, in a very general sense, about the place of desire in faith. Before we zoom in on some of the, what the Bible teaches about this stuff. I want to begin very generally at kind of uh, 20,000 feet. Because I think that we, we're living between competing notions. 
On the one hand, we have the, the, the idea that the world buys into, which is that your desires are God. If you ask me what is at the root of all of the ethical wrangling about so many issues today, it is this that, that man has put desire on the throne where it used to be, we used to believe in a God outside of ourselves, and now desire has taken that place. So people believe in the God called happiness. All the debates around ethical issues revolve around this. This is where the root of when people talk about rights, they're really talking about the right to be happy. It's enshrined, isn't it, in, in the U.S. Constitution, the pursuit of happiness. I don't think the Puritans or the guys who wrote it, the Founding Fathers, had any, any idea what would happen to that notion in the 20th, 21st centuries. But when you, when you think about all the issues about uh, homosexuality and gay marriage, about euthanasia... All of these ethical issues about, there was a Louis Theroux program on, wasn't there, this week, about um, kids who are having a, the transgender sort of surgery, I don't know the exact terms, you know, they're going through the processes from childhood, and people are fighting for their right to do that. All of these issues revolve around, well, what's, what makes me happy? That must be right. And I have a couple of problems with that. One is just the logical issue. There go my notes. <coughs> One is the logical issue that you cannot... <laughs> Who's, whose happiness trumps whose? Sooner or later, our happiness is going to conflict, isn't it? That something that makes you happy is going to conflict with what makes me happy. You cannot make desire a God and expect everyone to come off well out of that. But also... I think we've got to own up to the reality that it just doesn't work. I think this is one of the most profound paragraphs I've ever read in Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on the Sermon on the Mount. He wrote this. He says, We're not to hunger and thirst after blessedness. We're not to hunger and thirst after happiness. According to the Scriptures, happiness is never something that should be sought directly. It's always something that results from seeking something else. He says, The world is seeking for happiness. That is the meaning of its pleasure mania. It's an amazing expression just to capture what we're seeing happening in 21st century society. There are no values outside of us. We are ruled by pleasure mania. And he says that's the meaning of everything men and women do, not only in their work, but still more in their pleasures. They're trying to find happiness. They're making it their goal, their one objective. But they do not find it because whenever you put happiness before righteousness, you'll be doomed to misery. That is the great message of the Bible from beginning to end. That's one extreme. At the other extreme, you have this idea. Sometimes a reaction to it. That holiness and true spirituality, in whatever faith you happen to believe in, is the denial of, of de- desire. It's crushing desire. It's there enshrined in the very core of what um, Buddhists believe, that the eightfold path is a path to squash your desires. Is that possible? Is it logical? Isn't it a desire in itself to squash your desires? A lot of people have fallen into this. It's where we get this word asceticism, the idea that you can make yourself more holy, more righteous by crushing your desires. 
And the Bible has no time for this. It has no time for it. Paul says that it's, it's worldly wisdom. In Colossians uh, chapter 2, he talks about this in the most scathing language. He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on this asceticism, this crushing of desire and self-denial. And he goes on and says, Why, if, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He's saying, in effect, that the more you focus on trying to crush your desires, the more inflamed that they become. It's like picking a scab, isn't it? You so want it to get better, and you keep picking at it, and picking at it, and picking at it, and it never heals. It becomes aggravated. It becomes inflamed. And the Bible never tells us that the way to deal with desire is simply and purely just to crush it and squash it and, and try and exert all your energy upon it in that sense. So when we're thinking about the place of desire in the Christian life, we know that it's a much more nuanced thing in the Scriptures, that the godly in the Bible actually possess vigorous spiritual desires. I read some verses at the beginning which um, articulated that in Psalm 63. Earnestly, earnestly, Lord, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then a little bit earlier in Psalm 42, you can read similar kind of expressions where um, the psalmist writes, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? These kinds of expressions are all the way through the Bible. The, the godly possess these, this vigorous, yearning spiritual appetite. It's not that they have no desire. Their desires are passionate, but they're directed in the right way. So then what are we to do with desire? I think that the Bible teaches us three things, and I want us to just meditate a little bit more on this. The first is that there are desires that we have to crush. You've got to take this in the context of everything I've said so far, but hear me through. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, which implies that there is a hunger and a thirst which will kill you. There are desires that you can have in your life which will lead you into very, very dark places. In the book of James, he puts it like this. He says that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So There are some desires in your heart that are problematic, aren't there? It says then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. He's saying there are logical consequences. He's using this metaphor of conception and childbirth. He says your desire gives birth to sin. And then sin, as it's full grown, as it grows into an adult in your life, brings forth death. So if you nurture your desires, the wrong kinds of desires, the results are death. And we see this 
all through the Bible, even right at the very beginning, when we're looking at what's happening in the Garden of Eden, Eve was captivated by the appearance of the fruit, wasn't she? Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. You know what that feels like, don't you? There are many things in life that are a delight to the eyes. The eyes are the window to the soul, aren't they? Jesus said that if your eye is full of darkness, your whole soul is full of darkness. If your eye is full of light, your whole soul is full of light. The things that we fix our eyes upon have consequences for our spiritual life. It was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise. We see this playing out all through the Bible. You think about David's experience when it says in springtime when the kings go out to war, David was on his rooftop and he just glances across Jerusalem and there just bathing across the city is a woman. And he looks, but he looks too long. And what he sees as a delight to his eyes creeps into his soul, desire, when it's full grown. Desire gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. For him, it was a literal thing. He commits adultery with her. He has to cover it up by sending her husband off to the front lines of battle, like special forces troops. He sends them into the, the, most, into the fray, knowing that he's going to die. Desire, sin, death. And then she's pregnant. And she gives birth nine months later. And then, soon after that, the child dies. Sin, desire, sin, death. This is a warning all the way through the Bible. And it's not just that sin will lead you into dark places. And your desires, if left unchecked, will lead you into dark places. It's also that anyone who's honest with themselves will will admit that these kinds of desires, desires that leave you feeling dirtier the more you indulge them, can never satisfy. They, they in fact make you feel parched. It's like drinking seawater. This is why I read to you from this Psalm 107, right at the, um, at the beginning of the message, where he says, some wandered in desert wastes. He's depicting a spiritual condition, isn't he? That some people find themselves under the blistering heat of the sun. And if you've ever experienced extreme thirst, it is one of the most desperate and uncomfortable experiences you can ever go through. When your whole body begins to feel the languishing effects and the weariness of thirst and your mouth dries and soon enough you're a goner. He says they wandered in desert wastes finding no way to a city to dwell in. They're wandering, they're searching, they're thirsty, they're hungry. But he says they've been looking in all the wrong places. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. This is a description of what it means to live life without God when desire is your God. When Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, They're both just doing a rather innocuous thing, drinking water out of an ordinary well, something you'd do every day if you were there. We drink out of taps, obviously. But he sees into her soul, and he knows her soul's need. 
it becomes apparent as we read on through the story that this woman has had five husbands. And the man she's now living with is not her husband. And Christ knows it. That's why she calls him a prophet. He, he calls her out on this. She's a woman who's been searching, searching, searching. Which is why when he asks her for water, he then says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's immediately piquing her interest because she has a thirsty soul. Nothing that she's experienced so far has satisfied her life. It's left her feeling more and more thirsty. Desire, sin, death. What does the Bible have to say into this? I don't think we have to get too specific to know what kinds of desires we're talking about here. But it's anything which replaces Christ. And the Bible has some very direct counsel. It says in Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly or what is fleshly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He's trying to use broad umbrella terms for all the stuff that rages inside us and wars against us and wars against the Holy Spirit. Put it to death, he says. That is God's counsel to us. So that's the first thing. There are desires that that have to be crushed, that have to be dealt with. The second is this, that there is also another spiritual condition which we need to think about in light of this beatitude which is a kind of apathy or spiritual stupor that some people can find themselves in. It may not be the case that you have been wrestling with raging torrents of temptation in your life. It may just be the case that your spiritual appetite has become rather dull. And You don't feel any particular desire for God. You don't feel any particular desire to pray. You don't feel any particular desire to read his word. And I would suggest to you that I think this is in many ways even more dangerous than what we've just been talking about. At least when, at least when you're walking in sin, which I'm not condoning, but at least then you know you're doing wrong. And your conscience screams at you. And the Holy Spirit is grieved inside you. But somehow, when people find themselves in a spiritual stupor of apathy and sleepiness, they can be totally unaware of it. So why Jesus has to call out one of the churches in Revelation in Laodicea. He says, I know your works, you're neither cold. In other words, indulging sin and running off into everything that you shouldn't be doing. Nor are you, nor are you hot. You're not passionate for me. You're not zealous for me. He says, would that you were one or the other. But because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth, he says. Why is Christ so, so passionate about this in addressing this church? Well, you've got to remember what God has called us to be and what we are made for. You were made primarily to be a lover of God. It's the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So sin is not just committing bad acts. Sin is falling short of that call, the the call to devote your entire being to God. This is why if anyone 
talks to you and says, I'm a good person, even if in many respects they're better than you, if they don't love God, then they're not a good person. They are a wicked person. Because you were made, you were created to love God. Not just so that God could bask in his heavenly glory, receiving all the praise like some earthly kings and dictators do. Like King John Il, whatever his name is, who loves all this stuff about how he was, you know, um, an amazing golfer at the age of three and how he was programming computers at the age of five and all, all this nonsense. It's not like that. It's that God was made you to, has created you to worship him in order that you would find your created purpose in that. You're not fully human until you know what it is to love God with all of your heart. And so this spiritual apathy is a very dangerous thing and a very dangerous place to be in. What are its causes? Let me just give you a few things that I think came to my mind. One can be a kind of disappointment and disillusionment with where things have got you so far in your Christian life. I think there are, there's an unhealthy trend in Christian circles to pursue spiritual experience by going from one meeting to another or one church to another, and to do it because you, you're, you're trying, it, it, much like a drug user, to find some spiritual high. And sure, it might be enjoyable for a while, but you've got to understand that, that often that's, it betrays something a little bit corrupt in your thinking about God and about your privileges as a child of God. And often I found that people who, who, who run down that road eventually just lose steam, they're disillusioned, they're disappointed. They say, I've tried all this, I've tried all that, and... I'm no longer feeling satisfied in my relationship with God and they begin just to cool off and calm down or whatever it is that lies at the cause of it. I think a lot of people experience disappointment in the Christian life and it begins to to douse the flames of your passion for God. Another thing that can cause this is just, you know, we can be tested through suffering but we can also be tested through prosperity, can't we? And when things are going well for you, I've seen this so many times when People have begun to see their dreams realized. They found the spouse that they wanted. They found the job that they were dreaming of from when they were young. They've suddenly got more money than they know what to do with. And all of this, though not wrong in and of itself, these things are gifts from a loving father, can begin to make you not just physically obese, but spiritually obese. They douse your passion for God. Another thing that can cause this is just tiredness through spiritual exertion. When you're constantly giving and giving out, sometimes you can be in the most dangerous place of all. Spiritual leadership can be a dangerous place where you're... You can find that that your resources run dry and your love for God cools and dims and grows darker and you just keep going because you have to. People depend on you. You see this happening to Elijah when he has the contest with the prophets of Baal and 400 of these prophets are there crying out, crying out, crying out for fire to fall down from heaven and consume their offering And Elijah pours water all over his, calls to the living God. His one is engulfed in flames. And it's a big win for Elijah on that day. 
But he also then has to flee because he puts to death all these false prophets. And Jezebel's hunting him. And he runs and runs and runs away. And he finds himself in a place of utter spiritual depression in the wilderness. He's been giving out and giving out. And his physical tiredness, the fact that he's been giving so much of himself, it all comes together into this dangerous condition where he finds himself utterly enervated and tired. I love how it unfolds. The angel just comes to him and helps him get to sleep and bakes him a cake. And he feels much better. And everything seems rosier when you've had cake. So we're really glad Leslie's come here with the cakes for later. It can be a dangerous condition. Another one is just the slow creep of just falling away. You could look back on your life and think, there was a time when I was so passionate for God. And then you think about it, maybe you've got some nostalgia about that, but today things are different. You know what I'm talking about. I don't need to explain this in any more detail, but I just want to say to you, listen, wake up. Look what Jesus says here in this beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He wants us to have spiritual cravings and to find our satisfaction in God, which brings us to our final thing. We've talked a bit about the desires we have to crush. We've talked about the danger of spiritual apathy and being in a sleepy state. But listen, to put it all positively, which is how Christ puts it in this beatitude, there are desires that God wants you to have in your heart. Let me read to you something that John Stott wrote in commenting on these verses, which I just found so striking and helpful. He says, There is perhaps no greater secret of progress. Don't we all want progress, right? No greater secret of progress in Christian living than a healthy, hearty spiritual appetite. Again and again, Scripture addresses its promises to the hungry. God satisfies him who is thirsty and the hungry he fills with good things. If we are conscious of slow growth, is, is the reason that we have a jaded appetite? Is it not enough to mourn? Sorry, it's not enough to mourn over past sin, the preceding beatitudes. We must also hunger for future righteousness. Why? Because God's promises, as I said to you, of satisfaction go with this awakened spiritual appetite. I think I can all assume that all of us want to know this, this feeling of spiritual satisfaction in Christ in a more continuous way. Look how that Psalm 107 continues. We read it already, but he talks about these people wandering around, hungry and thirsty, their souls fainting. And it says, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. So he gives them a place. He gives them a home. And then it says, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. This is what Christ is talking about here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus made these promises repeatedly in the Gospels. We already read 
his, his offer to the woman at the well. I want to come back to that in a second. But in John 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says in John 4 about himself, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So when Jesus was offering you hearty satisfaction, he wasn't talking about something he didn't know about himself or hadn't experienced. I don't know if you've ever wondered, why is it that Jesus, in being exposed to sin and temptation, and the book of Hebrews says, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, how is it that Christ walked that path? And I don't think that you can answer that just by saying, well, he was super strong, and he just crushed all his, sin, all his temptations. He had no sin, but he just crushed them all and stamped on them and, and just had this raging spiritual strength. I don't think it, that's the whole picture, because what he says is, my food, my satisfaction, my, my sense of being full is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, Christ's heart was incorruptible because his heart was totally satisfied in his father. He knew this intimacy with his father and his heart could not be drawn aside to the left or to the right. Which is why when Christ experiences the temptations that are hurled at him, the devil calculated so carefully the ones that would be most likely to trip him up. In particular, offering him all the kingdoms of the earth to bow down to him. If only he would just bow down to Satan. Christ doesn't waver. He doesn't falter. His steps don't stumble even for a moment. Because his heart, his soul is satisfied doing the will of him who sent him. He was living out this beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, let me ask a final question and just round up with some points. How is it that we can awaken these spiritual appetites inside us or be awakened with them? I think, first of all, you've got to know what it is that Christ is calling you to run after. When he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, I, I don't think he's talking about the righteousness of being justified, of what God gives you by a gift when you get saved. I think he's talking about the transforming power of God in the Christian's life as you grow and grow in maturity and in the knowledge of God day in, day out, until you finally, as 1 John 3 puts it, you see him and, and, and are made like him because you see him as he is. That hunger and thirst after righteousness is is a crying out, God, let me be conformed more and more to the image of your son, Jesus. Which, you remember I asked you right at the beginning, what is it that you're living for? Christ wants that to be your supreme desire and ambition in life, to be like him. Know what it is that Christ wants you to, to run after. Secondly, know that it's Christ's power that will accomplish this in you. I know that this is a call to some kinds of spiritual exertion, but you can't do it in, an obvious, in yourself or in your own power. Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, if I can just find the verse, I've forgotten where it is. Philippians 1.6. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He said, when you got saved, God began something in you. 
But God has not dumped you or cast you aside like so many of those hobbies and projects that you've started in life that have been totally incomplete. He said God isn't like that. When he makes you his own, when he calls you to be his child, he doesn't forget about you, even if you feel like he has. You become his project. And maybe you walk through times where you feel an increasing distance from God or increasing frustration with yourself and your slowness of heart and how dull you are. But be, be aware of this, that God is still at work in you. It is, you are his project primarily. We have to be conscious of this, this power in him at work in us from him, or we'll just fall back into self-reliance and condemnation as Christians. Thirdly, know that what Christ offers is better. And this is the most important thing I could be saying to you today. So I want to spend a little bit more time just thinking about this. Let me show you three passages that just illustrate what I'm saying. I read you in James 1 how... He talked about desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. But here we have an example of how when the New Testament writers tell us the dangers and, and the absolute necessity to kill sin in your life, they, they seem so often to, to bring with it the promise of greater joy in Christ. Look how it then goes on in verse 16. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is picturing you with all the temptations that you're exposed to, like Eve looking at the fruit and seeing how good it was to eat. And he's saying, you could listen to the serpent and be deceived and buy into that, or you could believe the truth that every good gift actually comes down from the Father of lights. And he hasn't changed. He's always been the same Father who's given good gifts to his children through the running centuries. And everyone who's believed that has found their joy in him. So don't think that your situation, your temptation is unique. It isn't unique. Don't think that you're experiencing something harder than other people have ever experienced. They haven't. You're just stepping into deception when you think that. Don't be deceived, he said. Every good gift comes from the Father. So that desire that you want to indulge that becomes sin and then becomes death is a lie. You're buying into a lie. See through the lie. Understand the truth that God is offering you something better. Let me show you this again from Colossians. In Colossians 3, I just read to you those those verses where he says, put to death therefore what's earthly in you. But Paul doesn't just hit you in the stomach with that kind of, um, that kind of a warning exhortation that we need to be killing the flesh because he preceded it with these extraordinary lines where he says, if you then who have been raised with Christ, sorry, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So with all the negative of what it means to be killing the flesh and killing sin and killing wrong desires in our hearts, it's always married with this positive, what it is that we're meant to run after. He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I know our hearts find it difficult to fully embrace and understand what all of that means. I think it takes a lifetime of meditating on what 
your faith is about to begin to scratch the surface of what that means. But know this, that you can't put to death what's earthly in you unless you are seeking the things that are above, unless you have something greater to run towards. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying your heart can be delighted, fully satisfied in the Christ who has saved you. And then when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. One more place, Philippians. Philippians 1, 27, Paul has said something similar. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we're not saved by being worthy, but once we're saved, God wants us to live a life which brings him glory and reflects well on the gospel that has saved us. Kill sin, learn to live a righteous life. But it's preceded by these words. Paul is wrestling with this whole issue. He's in prison. He's not sure if he's going to be put to death. And he doesn't know what's better. He's not sure what he should be more excited about. Should he die and go and be with Christ? Or should he stay alive and have more fruitful work? And he's genuinely torn. He's not afraid of death. He actually, in many ways, would prefer to just die now. He's done a lot of work already. It's a fantastic prospect. He goes to see Jesus. What is it that keeps his heart engaged with the work? What is it that he wants to accomplish with his life that makes him motivated to keep going, keep suffering in the ways he suffered through traveling and through whippings and beatings and stonings and rejection and hatred? What is it that compels him to carry on going? And he just puts it here in verse 25 of chapter 1. He says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. It sounds rather mundane when I read it, doesn't it? But what he's saying is this, that Paul's great motivation in ministry was that the people he saw saved would enjoy what they'd come to receive. That's why he can go on and say, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He's willing to chastise. He's willing to call out sin in the lives of, of, the sin, of saints, of the Christians. But what compels him more is that the fact that they can have joy. They can have greater joy. They can have greater satisfaction in their walk with Christ. I think this ought to be true in experience for all of us who call ourselves Christians already. Because what Jesus says in this beatitude is not just a vague, hanging the carrot promise. It's something that should be true of you, that you have experienced this satisfaction in God. He's not just talking about something future. But it's also something that develops and grows. And it's something that we will have in its fullness when we meet Christ in eternity. That's why there will be no more tears, no mourning, or pain, or sadness, or grief. Because we will have all of Christ. And we will be happy. That should be your trajectory now, friends. And let me just add one final thing as I finish. Let me encourage you to dedicate yourself each day afresh to this pursuit. I don't think it's possible to maintain the spiritual appetite we've been talking about without just engaging with the normal ways, the normal means that God has given us to have these spiritual appetites. 
We could list many. But one of them is being an integral part of Christ's body, his church. Is your church a very important thing to you? Another is pressing through to encounter God in prayer. And to know what it is to really pray. It's learning how to read your Bible so that you get spiritual nourishment. It's not just skimming through. It's not just completing my daily readings. It's not just ticking a box. It is food for my soul. I don't think you can bypass these things and expect to still have strong spiritual appetite. You can't because God has given them to you as a gift to feed you. And part of that is also just knowing yourself a little bit. What is it that dulls your edge? And what is it that fuels the fires of love for Christ in your heart? If you've never reflected on that question, do so, even now. We're going to take communion. And as we take communion, I want us just to dwell on this verse in John 6 that I read to you earlier. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you're not sure that you're a Christian or that you've ever really tasted this, that's an invitation. Christ wants you to come to him and say, Lord, I've been running in all the wrong directions. I've been feeding on all the wrong things. Would you be my food? Would you be my soul-satisfying delight? And Christ will have you, and he will do things in your life. For those of us who know him and love him, as we come back to this meal, we're coming back to reawaken and reinvigorate our love for him by reflecting on his death for us, his bloodshed on the cross, to recenter our lives on this reality, to confess our sins, and to pray, God, awaken in me a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, that my soul would be utterly satisfied in you.